we're serious about that. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand up high and we'll make sure you have one. We are working our way through the Bible. Starting about a year, year and a half ago in the book of Genesis. And now we're in Exodus chapter 20. But if you're here for the first time today, it shows a good day to show up because though we're halfway through the second book of the Bible, we're at the beginning of something. For the next 10 weeks, 11 including this week, we're going to be looking at the Ten Commandments. We're going to be setting them one at a time, just taking our time moving through them. On Wednesday nights, in our Through the Bible study, we'll continue on in Exodus, so we'll get a little bit further ahead on Wednesday nights. But Sundays, we're going to sit in chapter 20 of the book of Exodus, where we find the Ten Commandments. So with Bibles open, Exodus chapter 20, I want to begin with asking you a question, and that's how does a person define freedom? How does one define freedom? With the war on terror and the recent elections in Iraq, freedom and democracy have once again been thrust into the forefront of the global debate. Is freedom the best thing for a people? There are those in this world who would say no. Who would say people can't handle freedom. People need to be governed in in a heavy-handed way. There are others who would say people should have nothing but freedom. No government whatsoever. It's interesting, I was listening to the inaugural address a few weeks back. President Bush was speaking about his agenda and sharing several different things, but there was one phrase that he shared that stuck out to me, and it hit me, and it just didn't hit me right. It sat wrong. And I began to think about what he was saying and how he said it. And I know what his intention was, but the words, the words caught me off guard. He made the statement that freedom... Freedom was the singular most important change agent in the world. He said freedom is the most powerful agent of change in the world. And at first hearing you'd say, yes, freedom. But then you stop for a moment and say, wait a minute. That's not true. God is the most powerful change agent in the world. Not freedom. For the reality is, if we truly have absolute freedom, which is the ability to do whatever we want, whenever we want, to whomever we want, oh, that's not freedom. That is bondage of the worst kind. Freedom's not the great change agent. The Lord is the great change agent. Now, a year prior to the 2000 election, there was a Newsweek article discussing this issue of freedom in America. And I want to give you just a one-sentence quote from that article. It's not a Christian writer, but he said the following. He said, There is a deep, vexing national anxiety about the nagging sense that unlimited personal freedom and rampaging materialism yield only greater hungers and lonelier nights. All that America has been searching for by way of freedom and the right to the pursuit of happiness, all that we thought was important in capitalism, not so much, for we find even in our country greater hungers and lonelier nights. James chapter 1 verse 25 tells us that one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. 
And we in our country have come a long way from the earliest meetings of America's founding fathers as they, influenced by the Ten Commandments of God, sought to put together a country based on that kind of liberty, on that kind of freedom. We've come even further from the glorious world-changing day when the Lord Himself thundered from Mount Sinai and commanded a law of perfect freedom. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water underneath the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave unpunished who takes His name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. My friends, if ever we needed the Ten Commandments, this framework of authentic freedom, it's now. Fathers, we begin to study these things. Lord, you have already provided us with the perfect backdrop. As Mike prayed before communion and read from Ephesians chapter 2, that it is grace that saves us and not works. And I pray that as we begin to study the law, that we would understand that. That we begin from the place of grace. That we begin understanding our salvation. That we begin understanding your love for us surpasses all things. And that as we approach the law, Father, we would see it in that context. And understand it with that foundation. Father, teach us this morning and prepare our hearts for the next several weeks, if it be your will, that we study through these things. And Holy Spirit, as always, we ask that you would teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let me remind you of something as we approach these ten words. Very important, verse 1 of Exodus chapter 20 tells us again the following. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The first words out of God's mouth on Mount Sinai. You may recall Mount Sinai is like a huge rock pulpit. And the voice of God thunders from Sinai. And when the voice of God thunders, these are the first words out of His mouth. Hey, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who did it. Remember, remember, don't forget, before you get to the commandments, remember this. You are saved. You're saved. 
Israel is a saved people before they receive the commandments. They haven't reached the promised land yet. That will come. But they're saved as they approach Mount Sinai. And it's interesting to me that it's similar for you and I. That that we are saved. Before we come to the promised land, we're not there yet. We haven't reached the gates of heaven. We haven't been called up by Jesus. We haven't experienced that yet. But if you are in Christ, if you've given your life to Christ, you're a saved person. As you approach Mount Sinai, as we approach this law to understand it. But I also want you to know that God, that God spoke all these words Himself. Well, yeah, that's what the Bible says. Absolutely. He also wrote these words with His own finger. Exodus chapter 31 verse 18. He gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written by the finger of God. Why is that important to know? Because it was only the Ten Commandments that God wrote with His finger. It was only these Ten Commandments, this that we would call the law of God. Exodus chapter 20, it's distinct. We talked about this in depth on Wednesday night. The law of God, the Ten Commandments, is distinct from the law of Moses, which picks up in chapters 21, 22, well actually 22 through 24 in Exodus and on into Leviticus. Two distinct laws, absolutely connected. Sure, they are for the Jewish people, but the Ten Commandments is unique in and of itself. Even Jewish rabbis teach today that the Ten Commandments were spoken by the Lord in 70 languages, they believe. The number of languages on earth at the time, spoken at Sinai, not in the Promised Land, spoken out loud, audibly, because the Ten Commandments have relevance for all people of all time, not just for the Jews. The rest of the law, the law of Moses that comes on him with all the ceremonies and all the the festivals and the feasts and all that, well, that's for Israel specifically. And we'll see those things as we study on forward. But the Ten Commandments is distinct. Now, understanding that, I want to introduce our study of the Ten Commandments and look at this morning some faulty notions people have about the law of God. Look at some, some negatives. I call them breakable positions. Breakable positions that people take before the law, when they come to the law, in misunderstanding. Breakable positions. You know the story. Exodus chapter 32 verse 19 tells us it came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf, that is the golden calf, that Israel had constructed while Moses was up on the mountain seeking God's law. Speaking with the Lord as it's thundering and flashing lightning up on the mountain for 40 days. The people of Israel in just 40 days get kind of bored. And how do they take care of that boredom? Well, they construct a golden calf. And they begin to worship an idol as the very law which, which would be brought to them was being given. Well, they're down there partying their brains out. And Moses comes down. And the Bible tells us that when he saw the calf and the dancing, Exodus 32:19, Moses' anger burned. And he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. Why would he do that? Because the people had already taken a breakable position before God. They had already violated the law before they even received the law. Isn't it amazing? This saved group of people couldn't even wait 40 days to receive the law. And gang, in our world today, we suffer the same ignorance with the law of God. We shatter its authentic freedom on the rocky ground of human arrogance and defiance and rebellion. We approach this law... 
And, well, we take some breakable positions on it. Let me give these to you this morning. Three of them. Breakable position number one. Number one, the law serves to impress God. The law serves to impress God. There are folks who approach the Ten Commandments and think that's what it's about. The better I do, the more impressive I am. If I keep the Ten Commandments, or at least most of them, I'll be good in God's sight, right? I mean, nine out of ten. <laughs> that's not bad. If I can keep nine, that's a 90%. It's like an A minus. If you go to Oak Harbor Christian School, it's a B, but it's an A minus everywhere else. It's pretty good. <laughs> What if I keep 8 out of 10? I mean, that's, that's right on that line between B and C. That's not bad. I'll keep 8 of the commandments, and surely God is going to be pleased. Well, God is not going to be pleased, and don't call him Shirley. You heard the argument. You've heard the argument. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I haven't murdered anybody. Read down the law. I haven't murdered anybody. I've... Don't worship any other gods, really, you know, except on Super Bowl Sunday. I uh, don't take the name of the Lord my God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Which day is that? Do we do that anymore? What about honoring your father and mother? Okay, I'm out on that one. Keeping it perfectly. Can we do this? Can we impress God by keeping His law? And the answer is no. As a matter of fact, check this out. If you study these Ten Commands, you will come to this conclusion that if you break one of the ten, you have broken all ten. If you break just one, you violate one command in one split second, one instance in your entire life. Let's say you're the ultimate perfect person. As I've heard Matt is. Let's say that you have it all together. And everything is right in your life. But just once, one time, you accidentally slip up and you violate one command. Guess what? You have violated all ten. What are you talking about? Well, I heard this great example. Example of being on a cruise ship. When you get on the ship, you've heard it's a solid ship. It's supposed to be a wonderful cruise. And as you're cruising out across the Atlantic... The ship begins to go down. It's not what we thought it was. Oh no. And you race to the lifeboat, but thank the Lord, you get placed into a lifeboat. And you're being lowered down into the water. The ship's going down at about the same rate, but hey, you're in the lifeboat, so you know you're going to be okay. And with our transportation and our rescue today, someone's going to get out there quickly, so as long as you're in that lifeboat, you're safe. Now, as the lifeboat's being lowered down, you notice that the hull of the lifeboat is constructed by ten strong boards. And they look good, and they look strong as you're counting the ten, and then you get over to about number eight. Oh no, it's rotting. It's got cracks in it and holes. And you look over the side of the lipo, and there are sharks in the water. And as you go down, nine of those boards are solid. Nine of them are good. But one of them is bad. And you're sunk. You're sunk. But, but right at that time, a helicopter comes overhead. All right, we're saved! And lowers down this long chain with ten links in it. And as this chain is lowered down, you grab hold of it. And you think, this is great, I'm saved. But as they're pulling you up, you look up and you notice chain link number eight. I don't know why I'm picking on number eight. Which commandment would that be? It's rusting through. And you know, as you glance down at the sharks below, you're sunk. And it's just one link. It's just one board. Oh, come on. Come on, you say. I've broken a few commandments here and there. Lying, okay, once or twice as a kid. 
God's name in vain are right. But overall, I've still done pretty well for myself. Well, the question is, what does Jesus have to say about this? And many of us will go, New Testament, good. Let's get over there quickly. Do it, do that. Will you? Matthew chapter 5. <laughs> I can tell by your laughter you know exactly where I'm going. Matthew chapter 5. 1,500 years later, Jesus stood up on another mountain, a mountain in Galilee, and he gave what is called the Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, he begins to give his commentary on the Ten Commandments. Listen, if you will, to just a few of the things that Jesus has to say about this unkeepable, impossible law, this law that was not given to impress God. Verse 21 of Matthew chapter 5. You have heard... That the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, Jesus says, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. That's Jesus' take on one simple command, don't commit murder. Jesus said, hey, you may think you're all that. You may think, hey, I've never killed anybody in my life. Have you ever been angry enough with a person to call them a fool? You have just murdered their character. You've murdered. You're guilty. Yeah, but, but come on, that's not like bloodshed. Hey, I'm not the one who said it. Jesus says, if you're angry with your brother, if you've called your brother good for nothing, and, and by the way, I never was allowed to call my brother fool growing up. Oh, I thought it many times. But I was always afraid as a kid, if I say you fool, then I'm going to be guilty of the fiery hell. But this is the position, folks. Anger equals murder, and Jesus says, guilty. Guilty. Well, let's look at another one. Verse 27. Skip on down. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Now, i got to pause here for just a moment. Because this issue of committing adultery, I know that among us some have. I know that. I used to think, because I was married to one woman... And that my wife and I are the only two people that, only one person that we've ever been together with that, that I'm clean, I'm free, I'm okay. I'm not going to be one of those, those people who have committed adultery. Good news for you who have actually physically committed adultery. Bad news for those of us who haven't. Read on to what Jesus says. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And the first time I read that verse, I thought, okay, what, what option do I have? Blindness. I mean, that's the only thing that can save me here. Jesus goes on. He says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if we were taking these words literally, we would be a very strange-looking bunch of people. Half of us wouldn't have hands. Some would be blind with, you know, eye hanging out. And it just wouldn't be good. People would walk into the bridge and go, okay, I know what this is about. I'm out of here. I don't want any part of this. Jesus says if you're angry, you're guilty of murder. If you lust, if you look at a person, a woman, a man, if with lust in your heart, you are guilty of adultery. And a quick read through the Sermon on the Mount, we realize God does not play games with the letter of the law like we do. 
Our legal system has so much fun with dancing around the law, finding the loopholes. That's what a lawyer does. That's his job. Take the law, read up on it, find the holes, and go for the hole. Drive through. That's how you'll save your client. And God says, hey, you can try and follow the letter of the law, but I know the law. I wrote the law, and I give you the spirit of the law, which encompasses everything. You can't get around it. You cannot impress me by keeping this law. You can't do it. It cannot be done. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Paul said, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed. In other words, shut up. Every mouth may be closed and all the world may become, may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For the law, through the law, comes the knowledge of sin. And James chapter 2, verse 10. James 2.10 tells us whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of all. So let's strip ourselves of this breakable position that we can keep the law of God and impress Him. God is not impressed. Breakable position number two. The law serves to oppress people. This is a good one. The law serves to oppress people. It's a heavy, weighty thing. It's hard. Hmm. It's funny because that's not what the Bible says about it. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 tells us this is the love of God. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. Here's the real deal, deal on the law, gang. God never intended that the law of freedom be oppressive. People did that. People took the law and made it oppressive. Stay in Matthew and flip over to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. The Pharisees were a sect of the Jews, a lot of them in the ruling class of the Jews, who took the law literally as they should, but they began to add to the law, to make it cumbersome, to make it burdensome, to make it oppressive. And the world tends to do that, by the way. People look at the Ten Commandments and either assume that it's oppressive or make it oppressive, applying it to people and saying, you have to keep these laws. Well, we've already talked about the fact that we can't. We're not capable of keeping these ten laws. We can't impress God. And the law, it's not oppressive. But listen to what people have done to it, what the Pharisees have done. Matthew 23, verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. In other words, they see themselves now as the lawgivers. They've taken over Moses' spot. And Jesus says, Therefore, and I love this, all that they tell you, do. Do what they say. Observe what they're teaching you. But do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Let's get down to verse 13. Jesus, speaking directly to the Pharisees now, getting a little hot under the collar, says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you! 
scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte or, or convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. These are not light words. Jesus is angry here because men have taken the law of perfect freedom and turned it into a law of oppression and it was never given to oppress people. Even today, these Ten Commands are not about oppression. The law of God is not burdensome, John writes. It was not given to oppress you, gang. The law was given to liberate us. It was given to liberate us. Which of these sounds more free or more liberating to you? Wondering which God who is is God or knowing the one and only God? Which sounds better? God's law said you shall have no other gods before me. Because he knew we needed to be in contact, connected with the one true God. Not wondering, not tossed back and forth like a ship without a rudder, not guessing through our lives, but knowing who is God. Oh, what sounds better to you? Bowing to the grindstone 24-7 or enjoying the sweet Sabbath rest? God says take some time off. Rest. Relax. I don't want you to drive so hard. Now, I wouldn't have thought that was necessary. In fact, as a teenager, that was one of my favorite laws. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, and Saturday would come along and Dad would want me to mow the lawn. I'd say, Dad, I'm in the Sabbath, dude. I'm keeping it holy. What's your excuse? But as we get older and enter into adulthood, isn't it interesting how driven we become, how hard we work, how much we feel like we just don't have time to take a whole day and do nothing? Which one sounds better? Which one sounds more liberating? Working seven days a week or taking that day that God has said to take off? God's law says, remember the Sabbath day, set it apart. Well, what sounds better to you? Rebelling against parents or benefiting from their experience? Now, some of you who are probably younger, teenage age, may say, rebelling against parents sounds more fun. Well, let's try a little experiment. Go ahead and do that for the next two or three years and see where you end up. Okay, parents are saying, oh, why did you say that? Please, no. I'll tell you where you're going to end up. In fact, kids, don't try to rebel against your parents because I guarantee if you do, you will mess up your life. Your life will be a mess. God gives us parents not to lord it over us, but people who have been through it, who have walked the, the steps of adolescence, of childhood, who know what it's like to be where you are. Aren't those the type of people you want to listen to? I've said this before, but I don't understand why a 15-year-old would ask the advice of another 15-year-old about something that is to come. How could they possibly know? I get all my advice from my 13-year-old friends because they know what's going on in the world. Really? How old are you? 13. How long have your friends been alive? 13 years. Okay, so how do you know they know any more than you do? But how about a dad who's 35 or 36? And teenagers, in case you think that I'm just picking on you, I'm a 40-year-old pastor surrounded with elders who have 10, 15 years of experience of life on me. Why? Because I need them. Because they have wisdom I don't have. Because they've lived life in a way that I have not lived it yet. They have seen and done things I haven't. And so I rely on them. And teens, you would be smart to pick up on that one. God's law says, honor your father and mother that your days may be prolonged. It makes your life better if you will honor your folks. What about this one? Which would you rather do? Wallow in the guilt of an affair? Wondering if maybe there was some physical ramification for for what you've done? 
feeling guilty in the morning, looking at the person, not being able to talk to them, watching relationships come and go, or enjoying a healthy marriage with one person who loves you and who is there for you and who is committed to you. And God's law says you shall not commit adultery. Do you see how the law liberates? How the law brings actual freedom to our lives. Well, we want to do it our way. We rebel. We're going to go the other direction because the law is oppressive. And what we end up doing is oppressing ourselves with our freedom. Whereas the law is given to liberate us from our sin. Well, if you're going to put it all that way. But that's the way the law is. In the law, God has set up boundaries that lead us to freedom. But with sin, there is only the delusion of freedom leading to oppression. So the law was not given to impress God. And it was not given to oppress people. But this third one is possibly the most difficult one for the church. And that is breakable position number three. The law serves to digress my faith. The law serves to digress my faith. You see, from a Christian perspective, you'd say, wait a minute, I've got grace. And if I go back and start trying to keep the law, aren't I now backing away from grace? Aren't I going to mess up my faith? I'm in the New Testament now, and yeah, i got to go back to the Old? i got to keep that stuff? Because up here, I really like this whole grace thing, and I like the freedom that comes from grace, and I like just knowing, hey, I'm saved, and if I stay here, that's good. But if I start to keep the law now, am I going to start to digress in my relationship with God? Matthew chapter 5. Go back to Matthew chapter 5 and look at verse 17. Doesn't Paul say, while you're flipping there, I think it's in the book of Romans, that where sin is, grace abounds all the more? Yes, he does. But he also says, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. So, what about this? Does the law serve to digress my faith? Listen to what Jesus says specifically about the law. Verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. Verse 17 reads, Do not think, Jesus said, that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But listen, whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Which now you can see why I want to teach on this so badly. Because whoever teaches them will be called great. You know what? I want to be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It's okay to desire greatness as God defines it. It's not an act of arrogance to say, I would love to, in the kingdom of heaven, be one of the great ones. Because to become one of the great ones in the kingdom of heaven, you have to become like one of these children that we prayed for. To become great in God's kingdom, you humble yourself. To become a a great person, you become servant of all, Jesus said. The law. The law. Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. I came to fulfill it. And by the way, fulfill it he did three ways very quickly. He fulfilled the law in his life. In his life, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. But you know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. 
Remember what Judas said about him? I have betrayed innocent blood. What did Pilate say? I find no fault in this man. Jesus was pure, perfect, innocent. He fulfilled the law like nobody else could. He did, by the way, impress God with the keeping of the law in his life because he was flawless, perfect. He fulfilled it in his life. He fulfilled the law in his death. Jesus says, I come to fulfill the law. He did so in his death. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us that Christ died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God. These righteous requirements that we can't keep. Even when we try to be impressive, we can't do it. But Jesus did it. Which is why Jesus says, let me go before you. Let my blood cover you. Let my sacrifice, the sacrifice of a perfect man who never sinned, let that be what saves you. He fulfilled the law in life and in death. And number three, he fulfills the law in you. And this is the most amazing of all. This should knock us back on our heels and blow our minds. Colossians chapter 1 verse 26. Paul says, this is the mystery that has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to His saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And I'm like, okay, Paul, there's a mystery. What is it? What's the mystery? Paul says, the mystery is Christ in you, which is the hope of glory. It's a mystery. People could not have imagined when Israel received the law and over all that time until Jesus came. They could not get it. They could not imagine that what God fully intended was to fulfill His law in you by residing in you as Christ does. No way. You're telling me that the Creator God will reside in me? Yeah, absolutely. That's, my friends, how the law gets fulfilled. That is pleasing to the Father. Jesus came to fulfill the law and will do it in you. But listen, listen to this, don't miss this. Though grace is through Jesus and salvation is through Jesus and even the fulfillment of the law in you is by Jesus, there's something to know about the law. If you keep these things, if you aspire to these Ten Commands that we're going to be studying, If you seek to do them, Jesus declares that in God's economy, you will be great. You will be great. So the choice really is yours. You can be a saved loser. Or you can be someone who's saved and becomes great because, man, you wanted to keep the law. You know the law doesn't save you. It doesn't oppress God. You don't view the law as oppressive. You're not afraid that by focusing on the law and meditating on the law, as the Psalms say, day and night, that your faith is going to digress. What you recognize is that by aspiring to the law, you please the Lord. He loves that. A father whose children are just trying to grow up, doing the best they can, not getting it right every time, but certainly attempting to. And I believe it warms the heart of our father. Well, the law doesn't serve to impress God. The law doesn't serve to oppress you. The law does not serve as a digression from faith. But hear this, get this, understand this. The law does serve. The law does serve. And that's the main thing I hope you get this morning, that the law can become for you a servant toward righteousness. Your righteousness comes through Jesus alone and by His grace. But the law can be your servant. 
The law can give you direction. The law can help you as you attempt to love God, as Jesus said, and love people. Because you'll see as we study the law, both of those two things are wrapped up in the law. As I seek to love God more, I'm going to be keeping the law better. As I seek to love people more, I'm going to be keeping the law better. Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 tells us, The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. In other words, the law serves, folks, the law serves to drive us into the embrace of grace. Bottom line, the law is a servant. Not to impress, oppress, or digress. It exists to service the greatest desire of God for you and for me. And that is perfect freedom. Authentic freedom. Liberty the way God designed us to experience liberty. Paul McCartney is going to be singing at the halftime show today. I know you're all looking forward to that. I doubt there's going to be any wardrobe malfunctions. But gang, after 9-11, when the towers fell, Paul McCartney wrote a song that became very, very popular, an anthem that was sung, an anthem called Freedom. It's one of my favorite songs, but the chorus of the song states this, I will fight for the right to live in freedom. And I want you to hear that you don't have to fight for it. Christ died for it so that you could have it. And last verse, John 8.36 tells us, If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Praise God. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you wanting to understand, wanting to know, wanting to study the law. And I pray in the weeks ahead, as you grant us the time to do so, that we will understand the law. But not in a way that would be heavy for us or burdensome. Not in a way, Father, that we think we could just be impressive by keeping it. Help us not to fear, Lord, that it will pull us back. But, Lord, take us forward in our faith. As we seek to know these things that you stated were so perfect. And most of all, Father, this morning, thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the blessing that comes through knowing him. I thank you, Jesus, that you came and lived that perfect, fulfilling life. That you fulfilled the law in your death. And that now, residing in all those who call upon your name, you fulfill the law even in our lives.